everybody. Welcome to the Bottom Up Revolution. I am your host, Tiffany Owens-Reed. In case you missed our recent announcement, I am your new host. Uh, Rachel recently passed the baton off to me uh, to lead the show, which is a huge honor, and I'm really excited. I just love the idea that I get to talk to ordinary people who are making their cities better from the bottom up. I feel like I'm going to learn so much. It's just really a privilege to be able to be in this position and hear Here are your stories. Today, I'm joined by Noah Tang, a high school history teacher from Bloomington Normal, Illinois, where he leads a strong towns conversation group called the Bloomington Revivalists. Together, this group advocates for various policies that they believe would make the city stronger and more resilient. We recently wrote about them at Strong Towns and how they convinced their city council to pass a change in the city code so that residents could build ADUs, which is an accessory dwelling unit, uh, on their residential properties. Uh, This would really help the city adapt to a recent surge in demand for housing due to the presence of new automobile factories without embracing more sprawl and all the costs that come with that model of growth. Uh, The code passed unanimously, uh, which is awesome. And although it's not perfect, it's really a great example of how ordinary people can work alongside their local government to improve their cities. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. I'm really excited to yeah, hear more about your story and how you got this group going. I feel like it's such a great example of what uh, many people, myself included, aspire to, going from observing the city, noticing things that could be better, and then actually actually taking action and making change. Um, I want to start off, though, talking about an adventure that you've recently returned from. You've been spending the past few weeks in the Netherlands, which I would say for some people might be considered the urbanism mecca of the world, (laughs) at least as it pertains to transit. I'd love to know about that experience. I have a couple of specific questions. Could you share with us something you learned, uh, something you think we could learn from cities? And then I'm curious if there's anything about your hometown or just North American cities that you appreciated more after this trip, which I know might be a bit of a tall order. Yeah, sure. Uh, Let me unpack that bit by bit. So I basically spent approximately the last month uh, in the Netherlands on a summer school course through Intbau, which is the International Network of Traditional Architecture and Urbanism. And they are a really, really good group, really good resource uh, for people who really like Strong Towns ideas. This summer course was a three-week-long intensive class where in the mornings we would essentially have lectures from leading traditional uh, urbanists around uh, the world, as well as uh, in the afternoons, we'd often go on excursions to various parts of the city and other areas in the Netherlands. Uh, We actually stayed in the city of Utrecht, which by some measures is the most bikeable city on the planet. And (laughs) all of our excursions essentially were on bicycles. I lived in a student dormitory about, I would say, three miles away from where the classroom was. And essentially every single day, I rode my bicycle from the dorm to the classroom. And it was really, really interesting simply because the amount of bicyclists, the sheer number of bicyclists that I saw was absolutely insane. The number of cars, not so much. The morning commutes, 
I would ride my bicycle uh, bicycle down the main road in Utrecht, and you would not hear many sounds other than maybe a sound of a city bus moving. It was really, I would say, magical. And I think the Dutch have truly figured out a way to build bicycle infrastructure uh, that is connecting people to where they want to go. Sounds like they've really figured out um, how to think about the city from the user perspective of someone on a bike. And so it sounds like there's just this idea of like really being committed to that and and not not cutting corners, which I feel like is something you see with American bike infrastructure. I think the the Sharo is a perfect example. As someone who rides my bicycle to my work in Bloomington most days, our cycling infrastructure is not horrible, but I would definitely see room for improvement. Probably one of the most surprising things that I saw when I was in the Netherlands was the fact that many people with uh, physical handicaps use the bicycle lanes, um, essentially were able to travel throughout the city without a car. Um, and this is something that hits close to home because my mother is handicapped uh, herself. Um, and she has a mostly hate relationship with cars and car infrastructure in the United States. Um, yeah, that's something that is so important is learning to think about the city from a variety of users and uh, think about what does it look like to design. I know not everything can be perfect. You know, there will always be trade-offs and there will always be room for improvement. I think just the general principle of like, let's think about our city from the perspective of children, handicapped seniors, teenagers. People forget teenagers can't drive <laughs> for like four years of being a teenager um, and you know, it's like, well, what do it look like for them to be able to get around a little bit more and explore um, before they get their driver's license? Was there anything about uh, your experience that that made you kind of like appreciate something about your city even more? Yeah. So the main project for our um, summer school through ITBAL was to create a master plan, essentially a counter proposal to uh, what they're doing in the city right now with the more modernist idea of buildings and plot sizes. Something that I picked up from my lectures and experiences in the Netherlands is the fact that Bloomington Normal has good bones. Our, our city uh, originally was, just like many other American cities in the Midwest and West, are, is laid out on a grid, which is very conducive for active transportation um, and building strong neighborhoods. Something that I'm going to be taking back, obviously, is saying, hey, this is not necessarily a lost cause. We have, I would say, parking craters uh, in parts of the grid that could be built back up, right? Um, and I think that's extremely important that we don't just view our cities in our civilization as something that is just absolutely awful 100% of the time. Yeah, I like that idea of because um, I feel like it can be so easy um, when you're feeling frustrated about your city or when you have a vision of like things that could be better um, to just focus on the negative um, and just see like all of the problems. But I, I like this idea of like balancing that by also looking for assets um, or uh, unique characteristics that your city might have that could uh, make it distinct or given an advantage in particular ways. I think that's a good that's a good um, attitude to practice, especially for those of us who want there to just be bikes everywhere. <laughs> um, it can get 
pretty easy to be overwhelmed by by how difficult it seems to pull something like that off. Um, but I, like I, I've always said, you know, Waco. I live in Waco, Texas, and it's it's definitely easy for me to be frustrated with a lot about Waco. But um, one thing I've always said is, you know, Waco has the kind of size that uh, would be a perfect city to be able to just literally be able to bike around. Uh, if you planted more trees, uh, to do so much of your life, right? So um, the, the downtown is just so central. And it just seems like most of the neighborhoods are close enough to downtown that you could really have a robust uh, downtown-centric city. Um, so yeah, trying to find trying to find the assets we can work with, try to find something about your city that's interesting that you can celebrate. Um, speaking of cities, can you just tell me a little bit about Bloomington Normal? Um, what, what do you love about the city? What do you think are uh, some features that make it unique? What are some of its challenges? Yeah, sure. Um, I first came to Bloomington Normal as a college student, my undergraduate, for uh, history. And I am obviously a huge history nerd. So I got acquainted with the History Museum and local photographs and papers from the city back way back in the day. And Bloomington Normal has a very rich history. Um, Abraham Lincoln got his political start in Bloomington Normal before he kind of became very famous, obviously. Uh, he actually did some work for the school district that I, uh, that I work for. In fact, uh, in their head offices at the school district, there's the, the, the uh, contract signed by Lincoln uh, on the wall. So Bloomington Normal has a lot of 1800s history. Uh, there are a lot of relatively old and beautiful uh, masonry structure buildings in uh, downtown Bloomington, as well as uptown Normal. And they are gorgeous. Uh, surrounding uh, the courthouse square, you, you see this. And obviously on the courthouse square is a 1900s neoclassical courthouse. It's, it's magnificent. Um, and a beautiful backdrop for the farmer's market that happens every every Saturday during uh, the good seasons, essentially. Um, so Bloomington Normal has this cohesion, uh, has this history, and it ha is a little bit different from other uh, cities in central Illinois insofar that it is the, uh, I would say, the insurance capital of the United States, right? We have State Farms National Headquarters here, as well as Country Financial. About 15% of our entire workforce uh, works for State Farm. Uh, so we are uh, an insurance town. That's so yep. interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a random fun fact. <laughs> yeah. If you remember the commercials, Jake from State Farm, he was actually a bartender uh, in Normal, and uh, he actually signed his khakis, and they uh, put it on the wall in the bar. Which That's is so fun. <laughs> quite hilarious. Um, but I, I really do uh, love Bloomington Normal. It's a small city. You could drive from the south of the city all the way to the north of the city in less than 15 minutes. And it has a really good trail. Like Constitution Trail, I would say, is the heartbeat of, of the city where you could basically go from downtown adjacent to the university and beyond without really going over any major intersections. Uh, so I usually use that to commute to work. Other things that I, I love about Bloomington Normal is the fact that since I am a history teacher, I build relationships with people from my community. I can go down the street 
downtown and I could be recognized. I could recognize people. I often have people shout my name, Mr. Tay, from the cars uh, as they as they drive by. So it, it feels like it is a small town where I know everybody. Uh, and in fact, it, it pretty much is a small town with the big city amenities. Um, I love that. I remember the first time um, I was living in Asheville uh, when I when I when someone called out my name while driving by and I I actually almost cried because it felt like this gesture. I mean, it was a gesture of recognition. It was this moment of recognition because I would spend like I worked in an office technically, but I would spend a lot of time. Um, downtown, just going in inside all the businesses, spend time at the coffee shops. So I try to go to events, you know, poetry events and or live music. There's a lot of live music. Um, but I remember just taking a walk, doing my thing, trying to see downtown, and someone just sped by me and yelled like, "Hi, Tiffany!" out of the window. And I grew up moving so often that no city ever felt like like I had never had that happen. And I, by that point, I was in my like mid twenties, so I just had never had that experience of being recognized around a city and being called out like by my name, and uh, it's a memory that's never left me. It's really special when that mm-hmm. happens. Certainly, so Bloomington Normal certainly feels like home for me. I've been here for essentially the past eight years, and I don't plan on leaving anytime soon, just because I know so many people, um, and. It's just a delight to, to live here, essentially. So I know that you told me a little bit, and and, and uh, Strong Town's covered this, but I know one of the struggles that your city is facing right now has to do with uh, housing supply. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, so a couple of years ago, the abandoned uh, Mitsubishi plant out on the outskirts of uh, Normal uh, was acquired by this new electric car uh, truck company called Rivian. And we did not know how many employees they would hire, but essentially in a span of a couple of years, they went from having almost no employees to, I think about 7,000. They are now one of the largest employers in the county. Uh, And because of that, we have people moving from all over the country and in fact, all over the world to be workers on the line, to be engineers, uh, to be front house staff. Uh, The other thing is we have uh, a new factory for chocolate in South Bloomington. I believe it's the, uh, the Ferrero Rocher factory um, that is also expanding. And because of that, that has kind of put a major crunch on the current housing and the housing market. Um, and we are now, according to the economic development, the EDC, yeah, um, around, if not more, 7,000 housing units short. And I I saw a revised number. I'm not entirely sure if this is true, but I think that number is closer to 8,000 now. Um, So people commute as far away as uh, Kankakee or Springfield to go to work here. And that is certainly not sustainable for our environment and for those people's mental health. Yeah. How long of a drive would that be just for people who don't know? (sighs) Probably like an hour and a half, two hours, maybe. Round trip or one way? Uh, One way. One way for, uh, for that now. The other thing is because all these people are moving in from like Seattle, Los Angeles, and like all the coastal cities, they're eight, we are essentially uh, a Midwest town with our, our housing prices were not very high. So uh, essentially people from the coast with like, you know, multi-million dollar homes or whatever could sell their home and buy their house here in cash Yeah, and price out the locals. 
Yeah, that's a, I feel like that's a trend that so many small cities are going through right now, kind of the post-COVID population redistribution. <laughs> that's like, that's definitely just, I don't know if I would say distorting, but definitely uh, significantly altering, affecting, maybe that's the right word, uh, the housing markets. So I, while we're on the topic of housing, I know that you, part of what you're doing with the um, with your Strong Tones group, part of what you all were, were focused on was sort of helping the city embrace a new framework of how to respond to this huge surge in demand um, with ADUs rather than by embracing more sprawl. Can you, let's go ahead and jump into that. We'll come back to kind of how you got your group started and how you personally got yeah, interested in cities. Yeah, sure. but, but tell me a little bit about what you all were advocating for around this this topic of housing? Sure. So we kind of took the idea of uh, the strategy of throw everything on the wall, see what sticks. And uh, we looked to our neighbors, the other, um, the Curbanism Club, which is another Strong Towns local conversation started by uh, Kathy Shannon and Champaign-Urbana. And one of their successful campaigns in the previous years was actually to legalize ADUs throughout the entire city in the city of Champaign. Like, oh, this would be a really interesting campaign to do. Um, so we got together uh, as our organization, like uh, small meetings and coffee shops and the local UU church, and really try to figure out, hey, what do city council members feel about this? And it was kind of easy to, to figure this out because several city council members have been showing up to our meetings <laughs> and, and voicing their strong uh, opinions in support of this. In reality, we were able to get um, ADUs into the city code uh, with the city code edits, essentially. City staff just did that, and it was accepted uh, very nonchalantly. The big the big thing is, is that it allows ADUs in the uh, core neighborhoods and the downtown district. Something that we want to push for in the future would be allowing ADUs throughout the entire city. And also, um, the town of Normal, which is a different municipality that borders Bloomington to the north, uh, has not done that yet. But um, recent radio interviews with the mayor of Normal basically saying, yeah, let's look into this. I, uh, I think that this is uh, a good option for helping solve the housing crisis. Now, our group is uh, well aware of that. Uh, ADUs are not the only solution. In fact, they're probably a very minor solution to uh, the housing crisis. And that is the reason why we took the initiative to do other things, if I would want to talk about that uh, a little bit later. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to hear more about what else you all are working on. Um, And it sounds like that one of the arguments you were able to make was um, the argument of just long-term financial sustainability, right? And kind of helping um, make the case that uh, responding to this surge in demand for housing by embracing more sprawl, more outward growth uh, would bring long-term financial burdens or it would put long-term financial burdens on the city. And so it sounds like there was definitely a fiscal argument to be made there as well. Certainly. And I think the big thing is from our own experiences as a city, a couple decades ago, there was a development called the Grove where they essentially leapfrogged annexation into the countryside. And we were stuck with the bills for a lot of that. And I think the city council and a lot of people in the community were really burned by that. Um, And we really don't want any more of that type of development in uh, this community. 
I love the detail of uh, you sharing that city council members were actually at your strong towns meetings. I think for me, that's always kind of a surprise when I hear of like city, like folks who've been elected or city staffers um, actually attend strong towns conversation groups. And I think it's just such a great reminder that A, these are people too, and B, like collaboration is possible. I think sometimes there can kind of be a mindset of like, oh, we have to fight the city to get this done. Um, you know, the 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 city, I'm kind of doing air quotes, capital T, capital C is like the the villain in the story. And we have, <laughs> but I think hearing stories like what you're sharing is like, no, there's also these other, th- these other scenarios where you can collaborate with the city, with your city government, with city council members to affect change. It doesn't always have to be this. It doesn't always have to be a competition. Yeah. And I think the, the one of the important things is that they're just so reachable. Um, we are not a large city. Bloomington, I think is about 80,000 people. Um, and you could easily email the, the city council member and ask to sit down for some coffee or attend a meeting and stay after, and you can have conversations with them after. And they're, they're really nice people and they really care about this city. So. Yeah. That's definitely what I found in Waco. And it was such a surprise. Um, and people are always surprised when I tell them, Oh, did you know you could get coffee with your city council member or with that, that staff person or with the person who runs that department? Um, and the other thing that really surprised me is that uh, when I've gone to meetings, even though I didn't know exactly what I was doing and I wasn't really sure if I was being helpful, it just was so encouraging to this to the people who were working for the city in whatever capacity that anybody took the time to show up and that anybody took the time to give feedback. I just think there's something about just showing up, having conversations, like asking them to get coffee. They really do appreciate it. Like I've just heard this over and over again. Like they really, you know, if you think about it from their perspective, they they put months and months of work into these reports or proposals or strategies or comprehensive plans. And then, you know, they want the public to come give feedback and maybe a few people come, but you can imagine how that can be a little bit discouraging after a while. So when you have a handful of people who show up and are actually legitimately interested and engaged um, and bring new ideas and, 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 and are encouraging, like it's, I've just, I've, I've heard from my experience here in my city that it's something that they just really, really appreciate. Tell me a little bit about you. So um, what's your background? Um, and one thing I'm always curious to ask people on the show is how did you wake up to cities? Like, what is it that sparked this sort of um, awareness of the built environment, um, interest in policy, and and then just making, bridging that gap from observation and interest to to actually being engaged and ad- advocating for, for improvements? So growing up, I think I was always attuned to the built environment since my father uh, is an architect. Um, So when we would go on vacation, we would take the architectural tours. When I was a a young kid and a young teenager or whatever, we'd do the Chicago uh, boat architectural tour or like we go to Washington, D.C. and dad would always be taking the pictures of uh, the beautiful monuments, uh, things like that. And it really helped me understand things like we can build beautiful places. Um, And it's just really interesting because we grew up in a place that was not necessarily, I mean, it's an, uh, Green Trails in in Lyle is a very, um, I would say it's a, it's a suburb, but there's a lot of trees, but it's just not inspiring. I would say not, nothing like you would see in the old cities of Europe. So I think my dad's eye for architecture and urban design kind of was passed down to me. The other thing as well, um, 
my brother and I would often play uh, SimCity 4 <laughs> as kids. So we'd always uh, try to, to build big metropolises and figure out uh, transportation and zoning and all those things when we were like in middle school. And that was fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like so many people owe their city awareness to SimCity. It's, it's so interesting. I never heard of it. Yeah, I, I wasn't big into games and stuff growing up. But yeah, I just find this so interesting how many times I'll read comments on videos or articles and SimCity will be referred to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cannot wait for uh, City Skylines 2 coming out later this year. I'm going to be taking a couple of days off. Uh, I actually won't. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, when I went to college, I wanted to be a lot more engaged in the local community than I was when I was in high school. So I was in Boy Scouts in high school, cross country track uh, in high school, but I just did feel like I had that much of a connection to the local community. So when I went to college, I decided this was the time that I was going to do that. Um, And big things that I saw were we had essentially a food desert on the campus of Illinois State University. A lot of students whom I knew basically were digging through the trash or or trying to get extra meals from the dining hall from their friends uh, because they either, one, could not afford uh, the uh, the dining hall plans or, or two, just did not have the means to go get actual food. So working with uh, several organizations and a, a whole bunch of other volunteers, I helped organize the creation of School Street Food Pantry, which is a food pantry that serves uh, students in normal. But as long as you show an ID and are a student of any of the institutions, uh, Illinois State, Illinois Wesleyan, any of the community colleges, um, you are able to get food essentially for free. I was taking a graduate course, I think, last year, and one of my classmates like, oh, you were the person who helped start the food pantry? You were the reason why I was able to visit my family in Bangladesh, because she was able to save enough money from not spending on groceries, essentially. I, I thought that was really powerful seeing the number of people who are able to be impacted by things that we did. Um and this organization, the School Street Food Pantry, is still operational today. And every Friday, there's a ch- huge chunk of students waiting outside to go get food from them, fresh food. And we chose a location in um, the First United Methodist Church right next to campus. Very accessible for everyone. And I thought that was wonderful. We talked a little bit before starting that, uh, doing our, our interview, and you were telling me how like, you were also kind of part of the student body that this was like the food desert was affecting because you didn't have a car. Yeah. So my early years on campus, I did not have a car. It was not necessarily the most fun thing ever. I did have a meal plan myself, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to take the bus with a whole bunch of bags of groceries. is not necessarily um, fun. (laughs) There's been a strong push for, years to try to get a grocery store to open right next to campus but no one is man i part of me is tempted to just like go down a massive rabbit trail right now and like just riff on that because it just yeah i mean even here we have a large university here and there's no grocery store and the crazy thing too is all the main like restaurants that kids would want to get to your chick-fil-a in and out whataburger 
they're split off from the campus by a major interstate. Um, and, and there used to be a bridge over the interstate that you could walk over to go to the restaurants and then walk the bridge back. But then they took the bridge away when they widened the highway because it was too costly to rebuild it to com- because they would have had to comply with so many ADA regulations that it basically would have made it twice as long to like install a ramp and all of that. So they just took it away. And now kids who want to get to the other side, you know, they have to walk under this massive highway. Um, and I think it even took them forever to be persuaded to like agree to install lights. <laughs> At least that's what I was told is like it took years to just get them to agree to lights. Um, and it's just, it just, you, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about the user experience. It's like you have thousands of kids like who need to be able to get to food. And you would think it's just so obvious. Like this is something we need to, we need to address. This, this is a, a valid need uh, that needs to be met. Um, so just more thoughts on think, thinking more from <laughs> what you just said there reminded me when I was in the Netherlands, there was a essentially a grocery store almost in every corner. And they were the smaller type stores with apartments over above. And you wouldn't necessarily know it's a grocery store because there's no parking. <laughs> um, and I thought that was really interesting. I asked the, the, the people in the Netherlands, my, my uh, lecturers about this, and they're like, yeah, um, the government essentially <laughs> basically um, put a limit on how large a grocery store could be. And uh, because if you did, if you did not do that, all the grocery stores essentially would just go into one big grocery store out in the countryside. So um, there are big problems that could be fixed without government intervention. And there are problems that really, if you want neighborhood grocery stores, uh, you might want to look into government intervention. But um, going back to my background, (laughs) Studying uh, local history, I'm actually finishing up my master's in, in, in history this December. Been in, uh, basically been at the same university for eight years now. Um, one of the cool things about local history is I got to see a whole bunch of photographs of this city over 100 years ago. And a project that I did last summer was I took... Um, oh, have you ever heard of the, uh, Instagram account segregation by design? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I kind of copied their style where I took an old photograph of, let's say a library building or the city hall. And then I outlined it in red. And then I went to the exact same spot where the photograph was taken today. And I took a picture and I put that outline on that. And it's quite sad. The number of beautiful buildings that have been bulldozed for parking lots, in our city. Yeah, I had a similar experience with moving from New York City to Waco about three years ago um, and discovering these books of like that were basically collections of historic photos of Waco um, before the tornado that came through the city um, and then before uh, like urban renewal on highways and the era of conference what do they call these things? These massive buildings for like an conference center? center? Yeah, something like that. Convention like center, center. Yeah. yeah, convention center. I don't know why that was so difficult. But um, anyway, I remember looking through these photos and it just gave me such a wonderful – and something else my um, husband at the time, who was just a guy I was talking to, uh, he took me to the library and we looked through old phone books 
um, an old like collections of of lists of, of small businesses that used to exist. And it just blew my mind, um, like what the city used to be. Um, and it, it helped me like, it kind of helped me process like a lot of frustration I had because I could see like, oh, you know, there was something here to be proud of. Like there was a doll repair shop. Like that is so cool to me. Like a place where you could go take your doll to get repaired. Like, I just think that's so fun. But it just kind of gave me a glimpse into like the soul, like the heart of the city, like the vibrancy that used to be here. And then looking at the old maps and realizing, wow, they used to have a streetcar. Wow, they used to have streetcar suburbs. Wow, kids used to be able to like bike to the ice cream shops. Like it really um, deepened my appreciation for the city from that perspective and also deepened my, I guess, rage. Because <laughs> then you walk through downtown and you and then you just start counting the parking lots and you're like, I know it didn't used to be like this. Like, I know it didn't used to be like this. There probably were so many cool small businesses here. Um, but I think there's definitely an opportunity to channel all that energy and to talking about like, not how do we become like some other city somewhere else, but how do we get back to this kind of historic identity that we used to have? Like, how do we reclaim our history and, 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 and reconnect like where we are now to um, kind of our origin, like our, our legacy, like our history. And I feel like it's a very strong town's idea of like, let's look to history. Let's learn from history. Um, there's so many lessons. There so many guiding principles that can help us uh, shape out a, a beautiful and resilient future for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that's why our group's called the Revivalists. Right. We look to our past. Continue the story for me a little bit. So you get this food pantry going. I'm assuming you graduate college, start working as a teacher, and then to bring us up to speed to starting the Strong Towns chapter. Because it sounds like there's a part of your journey where you kind of go through this process of like understanding your city a bit better, like observing it, starting to notice different issues, like with the food, the food desert, and then saying, you know what, like we can do something about this and actually bringing a group together. What was that like for you? This was not the first time the uh, Strong Towns local conversation was trying to be start in Bloomington Normal. In fact, one of my good friends, uh, Tyson Moore, who was the chair of the uh, I think it was the Planning or Zoning Commission in Bloomington, tried to actually get a local conversation started. And he invited Chuck Marone to come speak, but that all was in uh, of March of 2020. <laughs> so that, that essentially fell apart uh, because of the pandemic. Of course, anything that gets tries to get started at that time is going to fall apart. So um, I heard about that and I got in contact with um, him a little bit later, I believe a year or so later, uh, where the pandemic kind of simmered down and we basically invited all the people that we knew who, who had any type of interest in this whatsoever. And I didn't know how many people would show up to this first meeting, but it was in my living room of my house. My house is not very large. And I think about 25 people showed up. Uh, several uh, city council members showed up. We've got some people on the public commission showed up. We've got business owners showing up, people of the neighborhood association showing up. Everyone was super interested uh, in strong towns and what we could do as a group in our city. So that was the the second launch, I would say, of, of this group, which we've named the Bloomington Revivalist. And um, we've since then, we have tried essentially to have meetings every month on specific topics. Uh, big ones have been uh, the discussion on removing 
parking minimums or cycling infrastructure or another one was the housing discussion where we did the ADUs, but now have kind of molded into a whole other uh, discussion on, hey, maybe we can figure out housing in a different way, right? Uh, trying to establish a community land trust. Um, another thing that we did was try to be more seen by everyone. We go out and we'd be wearing our shirts in downtown on Sundays uh, for the past couple months. We'd essentially pick up garbage uh, in the downtown area for two, three hours at a time. And we just show the amount of bags of crap we've been able to pick up. And the city is doing a downtown streetscape master plan. So that might, the data that we've collected, all the garbage we've picking up, maybe will help them out with their, with their uh, plans in the future. Um, so, so it sounds like you were able to just kind of bring people together and then let the group take shape somewhat organically. I'm, I'm just really glad we can hear your experience on how you, how you not just mobilized yourself to go from observation to action, but also were able to bring people together and not let the fear of like, oh no, what if we don't have perfect structures and systems and plans and meeting agendas and communication strategy? Like how in the world are we going to keep this thing organized? And it sounds like what you're seeing from your group is that it's okay. You can like an organic approach, you can kind of learn as you go. Oh, yeah. We don't have any bylaws. We don't have a formal organization. We don't have formal membership, which is good and also could be negative sometimes. For example, we have someone trying to put in benches using tactical urbanism uh, on the um, various bus stops in town. And they have been uh, seen in a great light by the public, but the transit agency is getting kind of annoyed at this member for putting these benches in and uh, not taking them out when they're trying to do servicing and to actually put in permanent benches. Um, so that is a, an issue that we are trying to figure out. How do we maintain a grassroots movement, but also be able to work with local agencies to institute permanent change, right? There's a difference of putting a bench on the uh, side of the road that's going to last two weeks before the city comes and takes it away or actively working with the agency to put in a permanent bench. Um, so these discussions are ongoing <laughs> and the email chain between the traffic engineer at uh, the transit agency, myself and uh, the, the interested parties are, it's, it's, it's interesting to say the least. So uh, we're not without our, our, our own controversies, but I, I, I think it's very important to understand that it's very organic. Yeah. And it can, it can work itself out over time. Like you don't have to have the solutions to every single possible problem or conflict that might emerge um, from the start. Right. Cause you're going to bring all these people together. They might all have different like stories, pain points, visions of success, things they want to work on, opinions, you know, it sounds like you're saying like, don't let the fear of how to work through all that, like stop you from getting started. Like you can, you can work through it. It might take some time, but it sounds like it's doable. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about what else you all are working on right now. I think the big push that we are working on right now is we're essentially working with a whole bunch of other groups in town to create what is called the Bloomington Normal Community Land Trust, which uh, Strong Towns has covered before um, in various articles in the past where it's essentially a nonprofit that will 
maintain housing affordability permanently. Um, so the most successful land trust in the country is the uh, Lake Champlain Housing Trust, which essentially houses about 10% of the population of Burlington, Vermont. And those houses are permanently affordable. Um, and I, we want to see that here. So uh, we've kind of broken off into like a side little group right here with a bunch of different organizations such as the uh, NAACP, various other groups. Like we've had city council members come in and uh, from both uh, jurisdictions join the uh, steering committee. It's something that we're really wanting to do because uh, the state of Illinois actually passed a, a law about community land trusts and they gave a new community land trust in the city of Chicago $5 million in seed money to help create affordable housing options. So we see this as uh, we're riding the political tide and we want to do a grassroots thing here as well. Yeah, what stands out to me about your approach um, to advocacy is really, and, and I think we've, we've hit on this a couple of times already, but it's really embracing like the collaborative model. I think there's sort of the, you know, the sort of cowboy tactical model, which some cities actually need, right? Like you kind of, you just kind of have, sometimes you just got to be out there under the cover of night, putting the bus covers up, right? Or, or, or fixing things and making it go viral. Like sometimes the tactical, like completely breaking the rules and just like shaking things up is, is a valid option. And then there's this other model of like, well, let's try to do everything by the book, right? Like what's the technical, like proper way to add to like get things changed. And that could, could just take a really long time. Right. But it sounds like what you all are setting an example of is this other path of like, Hey, we're going to take initiative. We're going to be grassroots. I mean, it kind of has that tactical energy about it but it's still seeking to collaborate with like official staff members, official departments, official organizations and say like, how can we work together on this? Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that's just a really, uh, really great example of, of what that can look like. Um, not feeling like everything has to be super tactical, but you can also be a bit more creative and innovative than necessarily, you know, doing, doing things the, the way that, you know, the bureaucratic rules would tell you to do them. Because if we did that, then it would just take forever and we, we wouldn't see very much. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, and I obviously, as a history teacher, I, I look into the great and successful social movements uh, of the past and try to emulate them with the current objects and uh, obstacles. Um, so this will be this will be my last question. I want to end on a fun note. Um, but if someone was coming through Bloomington Normal on a road trip and only had about let's say an hour or two to spend in your city, um, let's say grab a quick bite, take a walk, stretch your legs, get some coffee. Where um, where would you recommend they go? Obviously, these these are Strong Towns fans, so they're not going to stop at a chain store. Mm -hmm. So if, what what would be your uh, what would be on your list? Okay, well, hopefully you stop in on a Saturday morning because the farmer's market is my favorite thing that occurs in Bloomington Normal, right? There are vendors from all over central Illinois, and there are hundreds of people outside, just wonderful rows of tents uh, along the main street and a big, like, U around the courthouse square. There's live music. Uh, there's uh, finger painting for the kids, Right. There's people selling uh, wood sculptures, people selling art, people selling food, people selling um, 
half a hams or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's really fun. I, my dad, whenever he comes to town, he makes sure he comes to town on a Saturday because he loves a farmer's market. Um, on top of that, farmer's market, you go inside the local history museum inside the courthouse square, uh, which is in that 1900s courthouse. Uh, my girlfriend works there on staff and uh, uh, not to be a little biased as a history teacher, um, it really does a good job showing local history. Um, they have a, a, a good exhibit called uh, Community in Conflict. I hope I didn't get that name wrong. That looks at history through the lens of who has power, who does not have power. And it's all local history exams, uh, examples. When you get to food, I would say um, Epiphany Farms, the farm to table restaurant, really, really good meals because they're farmed about 20 minutes south of here. You can actually go visit it, see where everything comes from. Either that or Luca, an Italian restaurant um, that's been here for the longest time. It has a lot of history with the uh, local Democratic Party. In fact, there's pictures of like JFK on the wall, uh, FDR and all those different people. It's really, really interesting. What about a good coffee shop? Let's say let's say we oh, rounded out our tour with a good with a good latte. Coffee Hound is the reason why Rivian moved here. <laughs> uh, the <laughs> no, I'm serious. The CEO, I think R.J. Scaringe, he stopped uh, in Bloomington for a coffee on his way for a, um, a a trip or something, and he loved the coffee so much he decided to open the factory in Normal. And inside the factory, there is a coffee hound. So it is a local uh, coffee shop. And I think there's only four-ish locations. Uh, it's so good that we have the electrical uh, oh truck gosh. company here because of that. That's amazing. If if that's not a case for supporting local businesses, I don't know what is. Noah, it's been so fun to talk to you. I feel like I could ask you even more questions. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us and just uh, to share what it looks like to be on the ground advocating for change in a collaborative model. We will be back with another episode in two weeks. If you know someone in your community that you think would make a great fit for the show, please nominate them using the form in the show notes. Also, I will put all of the businesses that Noah suggested that you visit in case you're in his neck of the woods. Those will also be in the show notes. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.